Luke chapter 12, you got your Bibles with you? We're enjoying going through the gospel of Luke, gospel according to Luke. So many great and practical lessons for us. Heads up as well as we're after the six weeks of the marriage class, we're going to start a Tuesday night school of ministry. And that's open to anybody in the church to really spend time really equipping more people for the ministry. There's more and more things to do. Uh, there's, just, there's just a lot going on. And I, it's important that we're all just equipped and ready for the opportunities that the Lord is bringing. Amen? Amen. The title of my message is the kingdom of God. And that's a familiar phrase that we see in the Bible. And in fact, just in Luke's gospel, that phrase is mentioned 32 times. And so when you see something repeated like that in the Bible, you start to catch on that it's important. The kingdom of God sounds, it's not very descriptive. We know it's the rule of God that Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But Jesus would say that when he had come and done ministry in a town, he would say something like, you know, the kingdom of God has come near you. And you start to realize that everywhere that Jesus went, and if those people experienced the grace and the power of God, if they were healed or heard his teaching, they were, in a sense, getting a sample of what the kingdom of God was going to be like. Don't you love samples? Right? Where do you go for samples? Or the ice cream store. You guys know I used to own ice cream stores. I had uh, two Haagen-Dazs ice cream stores. Uh, and we love the little spoons because you need samples. You have to look through the window, see the flavors, and go, oh, I haven't seen that one. I hated coffee. I didn't plan on talking about this. So this must be of the Lord. It just has come to my mind. This is so important. I really hated coffee when I was young. And then one day I opened the cabinet, the ice cream cabinet, at my store in Laguna Beach, Orange County, and I smelled the coffee ice cream. And I go, oh, that could be good. And so I tried it. It was a gateway. <laughs> it was a gateway to now I just straight shots of espresso yeah. right into my arm. <laughs> but I want you to know I could quit anytime. I just don't want to. <laughs> so don't guilt me. I've already had coffee this morning. I will have some after church and maybe later today. Okay, we've gotten that out of the way. But the point of a sample is for you to decide if you want the whole thing. The whole thing. I was lucky when I had my stores, I would have whole tubs of Haagen-Dazs in my freezer at home. My kids thought they lived at heaven. And so... If you've experienced anything of the presence and the power of God in your life, which all of us have, that's just a sample. But here we still live in this world 
that's full of trouble. And in this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. What's the rest of it? Come on, extra. You get a sticker if you know this. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And in this world, as a young Christian, we're so obsessed with things aren't fair. And I prayed and I didn't get what I asked for. That's what a baby Christian sounds like. As you're growing, as you're growing, your perspective is going to start to change. That you know that even though there's trouble around you and it's unfair, the world is not fair. Parents, you say that to your kids. Now I'm saying it to you. The world is not fair. And in the meantime, you shift into this awareness that no matter how unfair it is around you, the Lord is with you and he is watching over you. And you start to begin to walk in the presence of the Lord. And that's kind of an old fashioned phrase um, that Christians used to say many years ago, they would talk about practicing the presence of the Lord. You ever heard that phrase? It's really an old fashioned phrase. And it means to live a life in the awareness of God's presence. So often we don't feel like the Lord's with us, but the fact is he is with us. Everywhere we go, the Lord is with us. There's nowhere that you are, uh, will go that the Lord is not with you. But as you mature, you become, you start to become aware of the presence of the Lord. And so Jesus says in Luke 12, Luke 12, 31 Seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Now, what things? All the things we worry about. Will I have food? Will I have clothing? What about the injustice of people? He's going, look, seek first the kingdom of God. That's Matthew 6, 33. He adds the word first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things things will be added to you. Get your mind on the Lord and the Lord is going to take care of the rest. Romans 14, 17, Paul said, the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So your old life before the Lord, it was all about your bodily needs, your emotional needs. That's the way the world lives. And we've talked about that before. Everything about the world is about physical, emotional gratification, passion, position, possession, as John says in first John, lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. That is the world. When I was a teenager, my, my mom would take me to church and she would say, don't be like the world. Don't be worldly. She was so worried that I was going to go off to L.A. I lived about 20 minutes from Hollywood, and it was the mid-70s, and I was a musician. So, of course, I was going to go to Hollywood. I was driven to play music, and my mother would say, don't be worldly. Well, what that meant to her was don't have long hair and don't listen to rock and roll. 
That is, biblically, that's not what worldly is. There is a description of what the world is, and it's in 1 John. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Lust of the eyes is what you see. Possessions. I have to have this. I'll be happy, happy if I have this. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh is passion, what I experience. I have to do this. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is position. That is the world. It doesn't matter the culture or the generation. That is the world. And I challenge you to look around at everything. Everything is driven by those three things. But not you. You're a child of God. You've shifted your citizenship to be part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. You now have spiritual life, so you don't live merely for physical, emotional drives. Now you have spiritual life, righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. In chapter 11 of Luke, Jesus warned the religious leaders of some of their errors, of their inability to discern the work of God. As they're watching Jesus, they can't even see that this is a genuine work of God in front of them. They accused him of working by the power of Satan. He warned them of their unwillingness to come to him for salvation, of their unbelief in God's word. And he says, you keep asking for a sign. And now imagine Jesus has done miracle after miracle after miracle. And they have the nerve to say, the arrogance to say, well, we're not really sure you're the Messiah. Could you give us a sign? People who, who have this false intellectual argument, if I just had proof, then I would believe in Jesus. It's all around them. And Jesus says, you wicked and perverse generation, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, which was an Old Testament literal picture, actual event of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The question is, why did Jesus do that, take the time to publicly correct the Jewish leaders? And one is to give them fair warning before judgment comes. Another reason is to protect all the other people from their corruption. There have always been Pharisees in every generation. And, and for the record, when the Pharisees started their sect, it, it was out of a genuine desire to be separate from a corrupt world to live for God. If you research historically, when that sect of the Pharisees began, there was a lot of corruption in Israel and they wanted to be set apart from that to live a pure life. Isn't that good? But over the generations, it shifted from that sincere desire of the heart to merely an outward show of performance. And that is true of many Christian groups. There was an original good work that shifted to an outward, just an outward performance. And that is something we all have to watch out for. But I would say Jesus, as well as 
addressing these things, these things publicly because he's, he's really earning the trust of the people. Multitudes of people are following after Jesus who have been or are now jaded by this fake spirituality of the Jewish religious leaders. And when that happens to you, you're thinking, I don't know who to trust. I don't know who to believe. And Jesus is literally spending time with them to show them the true heart of God. Because we, we all look to spiritual leaders to see something of what God is like. And often those spiritual leaders don't give us a good picture of what God is really like. And so God has become man. The word has become flesh. John chapter one. And he would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. That's a good word for Father's Day, isn't it? So in Luke 12, Jesus now talks directly to the disciples. And we're really in the final months before the cross. He's preparing them now to go out and reach the world without him. He's going to give them the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And the fact is the world is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's going to teach them some things about living in this unfair, corrupt world. There's four things that we're going to look at today in verses one through 34 that I'd like you to write down as you're taking notes. You're all taking notes, right? I know you are by now. I've harangued you enough. Now, Jesus is issuing warnings. Beware of, beware of. They're kind of in the negative. What I am looking for is the application lesson, the point that I need to remember. He's saying, don't do this. Well, I need to know what I am supposed to do. And the first thing I want you to write down that we're supposed to know in living in this world is that in this entire world of unfairness, God holds everyone accountable. If you don't know that, you have to learn this lesson. Because if you don't know it, you're upset every day. Why doesn't God stop those people? Verses 1 through 3. Luke writes, in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say this, say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's the warning. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. It is hard to live for heaven We might say when people are getting away with hell. We get distracted. And God, you have to stop them. And if you've ever been injured by one of these hypocrites, it's hard to move on from it. But we've all been there. But what we have to remember is that everyone 
will face a day of accountability. Everyone. Even when, if it seems like somebody is just continuing to get away with something, they're thinking, look, I'm trying to live an accountable life to God. What about them? They seem to be living like hell and getting away with it. If you've ever thought that, that is completely wrong. Completely wrong. Read Psalm 73. A man named Asaph, a musician, he's saying, God, I have cleansed my heart. But what about those other people? Did I cleanse my heart in vain? Why is it that I'm trying to do what's right? And they seem to be getting away with whatever they want to do. And it says toward the end of the psalm, until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord, then I understood their end. In other words, it was in prayer that the Lord opened his eyes and he thought he began to see it differently. And he thought, oh, it looks like they're getting away with something, but they are on their way to destruction. It's coming. It just hasn't come yet. And rather than be angry at people that are getting away with things, we begin to feel sorry for them. A day is coming. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. That is an amazing picture. Anybody bake bread here? Don't you love bread and the way that bread baking smells? Why do you love the way it smells? Because the leaven is working. You know what leaven is actually doing? Causes the bread to rise. You know what that leaven is doing? It's rotting. I hate to ruin it for you, but leaven rots. And it causes the dough to puff up and to rise. And it's amazing how you can start to see that puffing up in arrogant spiritual leaders. All this boastful talk. I got a word from God, really. What is that leaven saying to you? We have to be careful. Of course, gives us, God gives us a word. And of course, we have to be bold and speak out. But there's a little different tone to that leaven when it speaks. God only has set a, a time for accountability, but God's being patient with them that they might even repent. And get their act together. And that hypocrisy always works by puffing up. Galatians 6, 7 to 9. Write that down. Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. He who's and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And that is an amazing word to all of us who quietly serve the Lord. And it feels like nobody notices God notices and you will reap the benefits of it. The second thing I want you to remember and write down is that God sees you and God values you personally. 
So this is in contrast to us worrying about where our needs are going to come from. Verses four to seven, Jesus says, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, and I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. This discussion of the sparrows is what the very poor people, they would buy sparrows to offer as a sacrifice to God if they couldn't offer a lamb, if they didn't have enough money for that. And so if you've ever felt like, well, I I don't have the means to get through life. I have no position. I am absolutely nobody. I am barely trying to get by. I'm going to offer my $5 in the offering plate at church. And what difference does it make? Am I, am I making any difference in life? And Jesus wants us to know that God sees everything that we do. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He sees the quiet service we offer, the little bit that we give in service. And that every one of us is a value. And so we have to get to that place in life so that we're not losing sleep over not being more important, more prominent, somebody special in the world. We're not. None of us are. I'm not. And yet we have to be okay with that and know this, that it's not about being important and powerful in the world. It's about being seen and valued by our Heavenly Father. That's what's important. And every one of you is of great value to your Heavenly Father. The third thing I want you to write down in verses 8 through 12 And that is that God will honor your public confession or testimony of him. Now, again, he's talking to the disciples that are going to go out into a a very hostile world. They're going to be persecuted. The apostles will all be martyred, except for Judas will kill himself. And then John, the apostle John, they will try and kill him, but it won't work. And they'll send him to the island of Patmos. But the other 10 will all be killed for their faith and their public confession. Also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the son of man, also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angel of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now, over my years in ministry, there's always been a lot of discussion. Like, what is this? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And quite often people will come to me and say, 
you know what, I really want to get back in church or I want to renew my relationship with the Lord, but I am afraid I have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard people say something like that? The blasphemy of the Spirit is something very specific. First of all, if anyone has a desire to come back to the Lord, they have not committed the blasphemy of the Spirit because their desire to come back to the Lord is their response to God drawing them back. And if they had committed the blasphemy of the Spirit, whatever it is, God would have left them alone. Do you understand that? So when they say, I want to come back, but I'm afraid I'm disqualified now, they haven't. And Jesus says, if anyone speaks a word against the Son of Man, against him, it will be forgiven. So it's not that. So it's something else. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? John 16, Jesus said, the Spirit will draw people to him. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to draw us to Jesus Christ. He works with us. Para is the Greek word, para alongside. And then he become, he's in us when we believe in Jesus. And then he's overflowing from us. Those are the three prepositions in the New Testament. With, in, and upon. Para, in, happy. The Holy Spirit is with us, bringing us to Jesus, convicting us of sin. Then when we believe, the Holy Spirit indwells us. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit is upon you. Three different Greek words. With, in, upon. So the very work of the Spirit is to bring you to Jesus. So here's the thing. If I reject or if anyone rejects the work of the Holy Spirit to bring me to Jesus, there is no forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus is the forgiveness. And if I reject Jesus, there is no other way to be saved. Are you with me? I can't be saved if I reject the only means of salvation. That's all that means. They have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They've rejected the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So we can do a lot of stupid things in our life and be forgiven. We can say harsh things against Jesus or about Jesus and be forgiven. And the Holy Spirit is working with us. So patient to help us work things out. But if I come to that place where I say, I just reject Jesus completely. There's no other way to be forgiven of my sins. The fourth thing I want you to write down. In verses 13. Let me just read that last couple of scriptures in that section, verses 11 and 12. He says, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say 
for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you to say, what you are to say. So again, they're facing direct persecution. We face very mild persecution and we're chickens. I don't want to say anything. (laughs) But here's the thing. Whenever the Lord really compels you to speak out and share your faith, there is just this promise that the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. We all think we don't know what to say. Well, how many times have you said that? I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. It's often to family. I mean, I don't know if, if I have shared this. Um, about 15 years ago, I got a call from my sister-in-law in Hawaii and said, Terry, you need to come to Hawaii now. Your brother needs to see you. I have an older brother in heaven. He's 11 years older, older than me. at had cancer. He was down to 95 pounds. Your brother wants to see you. First thing I said to myself is, I don't know what to say. I have no idea, but I got on a plane that day, landed, drove straight to the hospital in Oahu. And as soon as I walked in, I knew what to say. He received the Lord. His wife received the Lord. See, the Lord had already prepared the way. And the the funny thing is my sister-in-law's brother was also in the same hospital, hospital with cancer. My brother had cancer. I went and visited with, with him and his wife, and they both received the Lord. It's amazing when the Lord says, now, this is the time I've appointed for you to say something. How he's prepared the way, and he'll give you the words. Fourth thing to write down, this is verses 13 to 34. I won't read all of it, but a lot of it is this promise that God will provide our needs. God will provide for our needs. And again, they are going out into a a persecuting world. Verse 13, then one from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? He said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. That's the next warning. Beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. That's the shift. In the world, my life is all about what I possess. Now, as a child of God, my life is about something different. The warning against covetousness, things will make me happy. And of course, we all know that that's not true, right? Have you discovered that's not true? If I just have this thing, my grandkids are still figuring that out. If I just have this video game, then I'll be happy. So. So Jesus goes on from there and tells a parable of a rich man who says, I have so many crops. I have such an abundance of crops that I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build new barns and I'm going to fill my new barns with all of my abundance. And then I will say to myself, self, you ever said that self? Now you can be at peace and rest because you have stored up for yourself all of this abundance in verse 20 and 21. But God said to him, fool, this night, your soul will be required of you. 
Then whose will those things be in which you've provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. When my wife and I were young, younger, I'm still pretty young. We had a little house. We bought this little house in Beaverton, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, 1,450 square feet, three little girls, six, eight, and 10, when we moved into it in 1993. And those three little girls wouldn't stop growing. I had three teenagers all at the same time in a three-bedroom house. And several times we would try and, you know, sell that house several times. A couple of times, let's sell this house, buy something bigger. And we kept looking at bigger houses with more bedrooms and more bathrooms and realized I didn't want to pay those prices. Let's go back and fix our little house and make it what we want. And we were perfectly fine. When somebody says we have 10 bedrooms and five bathrooms, I'm going great. That is so great that you get to clean all those bathrooms and fix those toilets. Good for you. Somebody has five cars. I'm going, that's just great. More oil changes I would have to do. I don't want to do that. If you're so rich, you have somebody to take care of your business. That's great. Then you have to deal with staff, which is annoying. It just gets worse and worse. I really like a simple life. Fairly simple. Five guitars is enough. I think, I'm not sure, but how many guitars is enough? That's what every wife asks their husband who buys guitars. What's, what's the response? I'll let you know. Have you seen the programs and television, the houses of the rich that have built these mansions and never lived in them? <laughs> and then they die and those very houses sit in decay. I'm thinking, why? why? Why do I need my mind to be worrying about building things that I will never live in? I don't even need it. And how wonderful my simple life is. Verse 22, Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Underline that right there. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Have you ever seen the ravens or any of the birds gathering together frantic because they didn't get, where are we going to get some food? Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon 
in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith. Verse 29. Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind for all these things. The nations of the world seek after and your father knows what you need that you need all these things, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. Isn't that great to hear? It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So just trust him. And we have to stop reacting to everything around us and start living a life of faith. Living a life where we, we read God's word and we actually believe it. We read it and we believe it. And we don't overcomplicate it. We don't make it technical. We just know that our father loves us. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves, uh, provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just in closing, underline that last sentence that I just read. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's just a a practical, mechanical reaction. Whatever you are looking at and whatever you're treasuring, your heart is obsessed with it. If you're always looking at things Uh, to buy, then your heart is obsessed with that. But if your heart is looking at the word of God, then your mind is thinking about it and your treasure will be laid up in heaven. It will transform your life to value spiritual things over material things. Again, it's, there's nothing, it's not a sin to want material things. It's a sin to be obsessed with it, to live for it. It will always, always let you down. Let's stand together this morning and we're going to receive communion together. And what we love about receiving communion is it just brings us back to the main thing. And that is the provision of forgiveness and life through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus took the bread and the cup during Passover supper. And he would say, this bread is my body broken for you. And this cup is my blood shed for you. So we've all been through, it feels like, you know, frankly, at this time of year, school is wrapping up, the seasons are changing, several people have been sick, 
And I encourage you just to kind of reset today. Just say, just take a minute with this. Have a moment of prayer between, between you and the Lord and just say, Lord, would you just renew my heart? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you come into my life? If you've never asked the Lord into your life, just say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. And bring me into the family of God. If you're at home, I think today there's several of our families still at home or traveling and I encourage you as well just to take a minute to, to get your heart back on the Lord or just be refreshed in the presence of the Lord. So as the worship team leads us in this song, when you're ready, you can come forward. The baskets are here at the front. Get the communion elements, go back to your seat, have a minute of prayer and just let the Lord renew you and just get back to what's important. Lord, thank you for this morning, reminding us of how much you love us, you care for us, you see us. You're with us in this unfair and unjust world. May we have peace again, faith again, and a life of serving you and not obsessing about unfairness or lack. Lord, strengthen us, even provide for us, we pray. Bless these elements, the bread and the cup, as we receive them, we pray in your name. Amen. When you're ready, go ahead and come forward.